Mindfulness Mode 228. Fear is not real. It really is only in your mind. It is a thought that has a physiological reaction in your body. Hey, Mindful Tribe, it's Bruce Langford here, your host and Mindfulness Life Coach. Thanks so much for joining us here again on Mindfulness Mode. I'm really excited for today's interview. But before I mention about that, you know, maybe you've been hearing about meditation. Maybe you know that it's affected me and made me feel calmer, made me feel more relaxed. Well, you can download the free Fine Tune Your Focus Challenge by just hitting pause and going to mindfulnessmode.com slash focus. And that will help you on your mindfulness journey. It's exciting to tell you about today's episode. Last time was JJ Flazanes. And if you didn't catch that one, go back and listen. It's well worth it. Today, I ask our guest, he's a surfer. I ask him, were you ever bullied? And he started telling me about an incident when he was he was surfing off the coast of California and an incident happened and it turned into a bullying incident and he talked about how mindfulness helped him through that. I think you'll really enjoy today's episode with Jamal. So sit back, relax, and take it all in. Hey, everybody. I am really pumped. I have Jamal Yogas with me today. Hey, Jamal, are you in mindfulness mode? I am. Nice to be here, Bruce. Oh, it's great to get a chance to talk with you. You've done some amazing things, and I want to share with Mindful Tribe some of the amazing things you've done right here off the top. Jamal Yogas is an author and teacher of creative writing. He's widely known for his bestseller called Salt Water Buddha, a masterpiece novel and documentary film which tells the story of a young surfer's spiritual journey as he experiences monasteries, meditation, and mindfulness as part of his fascinating search for eternal truth. His most recent book called All Our Waves Are Water is to be released in July. Jamal skillfully uses the sea as a powerful metaphor to explore questions about the nature of the true self. So I'm excited to talk to you about that, Jamal. So what does mindfulness mean to you and your world? You know, mindfulness... uh to me, encompasses so much. Um, it's sort of the ground of everything I do, uh, both in creative writing, uh, teaching meditation, and then uh, as a father, mindfulness is what continually brings me back to the present moment, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of my anchor in the stormy sea of life, and, uh, and also you know, my surfboard <laughs> right. to ride uh, the different waves. I started practicing mindfulness as a teenager um, when I was in a sort of lost place myself, you mm. know, getting caught up in uh, the popularity contest um, and getting into the usual sort of trouble that teenagers do. I don't think I was any worse than your average teenager, but I, I was seemed to be the one who always got caught. <laughs> oh, yeah. That. And I actually ran away from home. That was the story that I tell in Saltwater Buddha. And uh, sometimes you need to kind of hit a uh, 
serious obstacle before you realize that you need uh, help from from something. And when I got to Hawaii, I was on my own. I was 16. I had very little money. Um, and that shock to the system made me realize I need something. And uh, my parents had introduced me to meditation, but I'd never tried it. I sort of rebelled against, you know, what mm-hmm. they were up to. And um, but out there uh, on the island and and searching for help, I uh, I got a little book um, by Thich Nhat Hanh on meditation and just started counting my breath. And it was a revelation that there was something out there that was free and that wasn't external. Um, you know, it wasn't something that needed to happen out there that could bring me um, peace. And that I was hooked ever since then. And, you know, 20 years later, um, I still come back to that every single day. I have to, to quiet myself for, you know, sometimes it's five minutes, sometimes it's an hour, but, uh, that daily ritual, but then I try to bring out into, um, into the, the seas of life. Is it always silent meditation or is it sometimes guided or what, what do you do? You know, I've worked with various forms, Bruce. Um, I did, uh, I lived in a Zen monastery after high school, as you mentioned, and, uh, there we were sort of focusing on silent, still meditation, um, usually just focused on the breath and the body sensations. So, um, basically, you know, taking a perspective on thought, like the thoughts are waves in the ocean and you are the sea. And so every thought that passes by, you just kind of watch it without attaching to it and using the breath as a way to come back. When you find yourself lost in the wave of thought or kind of getting held down by it, um, you, you pop back out and, and use the breath as your, as your awareness point. Um, that's still what I generally do, um, but I have, you know, I've trained in Tibetan schools where you're doing more visualizations. Mm-hmm. I've, uh, I've done, I lead a lot of guided meditations, um, like the body scan, where a lot of, um, you're probably familiar with mindfulness techniques where you, you start by feeling some sensation at the top of your head and you yes. basically just scan your body down to the toes and go back and forth. Mm-hmm. I often lead that meditation and do it myself guided. I prefer um, to uh, have quiet um, rather than a guided uh, meditation. Um, I think because my life is so full with three <laughs> little ones of chatter that when mm-hmm. I go and sit, I like to um, just kind of uh, have that break. Um, but it takes various forms and you know, I, I like to go into stillness and silence. And then as I get up, you know, to move around, do a walking meditation or a surfing meditation, um, to try to maintain that awareness of breath, um, and that anchor as I go through movement or speaking, etc. Right. And I know that, that you do a lot of writing, of course, did you always love writing even from the time you were a child or did that come later in your life? Uh, good question. Yeah, I, I never thought I would be a writer. Um, I always did like to write. Um, I, I, I wrote stories as a, mm-hmm. 
uh, you know, first and second grader, I remember, you know, writing stories about, all, and they were often a kind of a hero's journey, like a, a skier in the Olympics or a seal trying to save the world. And, um, but I never fancied myself as a writer. I, I, um, I, I was one of those kids who wanted to do everything, archaeologist, actor, you know, stuntman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think it was because of that that when I got out of college, um, I realized I still wanted to do everything. And writing and journalism were a way to wear a lot of different hats. So when I was doing a story on uh, a legal issue, I felt like a lawyer. When I was doing a story on a crime, I felt like a private investigator. When I was doing a story on sports, I felt like I was playing for the Warriors, you know, or at least getting a glimpse into that world. And um, I still have uh, a fascination with just about everything. And writing kind of allows me to wear those different hats. And um, and by the way, I think mindfulness plays a huge role in that because. Um, when you're going into a, in journalism, you're always thrown into these new environments. And for example, I followed the Warriors for a season. I'd never written about sports and I was really nervous to talk to these guys and everybody knew more about basketball than me. But, um, you know, mindfulness to me is all about embracing difficult emotions and sort of sticking with them and instead of running from them. And so every time that comes up, in a journalism situation, you know, I try to, I have that breath as sort of like my, my internal coach and, um, and it helps me a lot in those, uh, in those situations. And so do you still do a lot of surfing? I do. We live right, right, the ocean is across the street from our house here. We're very lucky to be out at San Francisco's ocean beach. And so even I, and I ride at home. So I take my, uh, uh, surf break, <laughs> um, anytime I can. Um, and, uh, I'm, I'm lucky to still go out there quite a bit. So pretty much every day then. Pretty much. I, I think that, um, it's important to get exercise and exercise is sort of, um, uh, surfing is my exercise. And so anytime that there are waves, I'm usually out there. <laughs> right. And do you have another sport as well? Do you have other sports that you enjoy or is it pretty much all surfing? I do. I like to run and I like to do yoga and, um, my boys are obsessed with basketball and baseball. And so we're pretty much playing those all weekend. Um, but, uh, for myself, yeah, uh, surfing and I can't run as much anymore. I have a bad knee. Um, mm-hmm. so surfing and yoga are nice, uh, easy on the joints. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you first learn to, to surf when you went to Hawaii, when you were 16 years older, did you already know how to surf at that point? Yeah, I, uh, I surfed a little bit. I'd grown up skateboarding and snowboarding and, um, fancied myself, uh, like I would be able to surf right away. But when I went out to Hawaii, I'd surfed a couple times on family vacations, but I realized I had no clue what I was doing and, uh, got pretty beaten up by the waves. Um, and so really, uh, pretty beaten up by the waves. Um, I then went to college out there, um, and did it every day. I went to college on the big Island of Hawaii and, um, and since then have, have stuck with it, but I was definitely a late joiner to surfing. You know, a lot of the great surfers started when they were, you know, three or four years old, uh, but I was committed to it. And, 
uh, it had a, um, I think I just always really liked the challenge of how difficult it was. And, um, and then there was also this correlation with, um, meditation practice where when you're out there, there's a lot of time between waves that you're waiting. And so, you know, you're, you're, um, you're out there looking at the horizon and, um, you know, you have time to be with your breath, be in the moment. And so it was kind of the sport that had these moments of pause that I really liked as well. Yeah. It sounds like a pretty mindful experience. Yeah. Yeah. I've never surfed, but I, I love, you know, being in the water and that kind of thing. But uh, being here in London, Ontario, we're not too close to the ocean. We are right here <laughs> by the Great Lakes, though. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's. I think it's just about if you if you've been near a lake or a stream or a river, uh, water has. We're mostly made up of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know our brains are eighty percent water, and so there's something that happens when we go close to the water, um, whether it's you know surfing or swimming. Um, that I think kind of brings us back to ourselves. I mean, they've even done studies that even just splashing water on your face brings you into a more parasympathetic mode. Um, so regarding mindfulness mode, um, you know, just, uh, looking at water or, um, being next to water has a, uh, a real physiological benefit for us. And, um, you know, if you can combine it with paddling and getting a little bit of adrenaline and a little bit of cardiovascular and some mindfulness, I mean, surfing has a unique uh, mix of these qualities that, uh, you know, we look for. And it's, a, it's, I always felt like I was getting like, you know, two birds with one stone out <laughs> there. Well, my mother-in-law just passed away a few months ago and she was her entire life afraid of water. She didn't want to be in a boat. She didn't want to be near any body of water, any, you know, close to it at all. And, you know, she had this tremendous fear. And I know that you did a lot of study on fear and you wrote the book, The Fear Project, which I think that became a movie as well, didn't it? And uh, no, uh, There is a little trailer out there for okay. the book, not a movie. But not a movie. Anyway, you really delved into that. You did a lot of study on fear. How can we get over our fears if we were like her and had a fear of water? How would we go about getting through that? It's a good question. Yeah. I mean, this is what I looked at in the fear project. And I went around interviewing all the neuroscientists and psychologists and meditation teachers. Um, And the short answer, I mean, is that one, it's recognizing that fear is not real. It really is only in your mind. It is a thought that has a physiological reaction in your body. So, um, one is like just noticing that fact, uh, it, it allows you to see it as an illusion. And so it also allows you to not have, it gives you permission not to trust it. Like it really is a fabrication. Um, that said, when you're in the midst of fear, it feels very real and it feels, and oftentimes it can be giving you a signal that you need to follow. Like, Hey, there's a shark, you know, (laughs) swim away. But there are so many fears that hold us back from doing things that we want to. Um, and there are multiple ways to answer your question, but one is we need to go into fear. We need to be exposed to the things we fear in positive ways. And so, uh, the, um, if you're afraid of snakes, 
you know, you don't want to go and hold a Python on day one. You want to gradually work toward um, positive experiences with Python. So you might watch uh, a cartoon about them. Um, But the studies show um, that taking baby steps, you know, first the cartoon, then, uh, you know, going to the zoo, then being around uh, a snake charmer, you know, and then finally on day 100, you know, holding the Python. But they see uh, better results if you are doing some meditation practice um, coupled with uh, that exposure therapy. So if you are, uh, and the reason for that, I think, is because if you feel comfortable when you're around uh, or or if you're following your breath and sort of in a more regulated state when you're exposing yourself to the fear, you're making that, you're coupling that uh, in your brain, you're, you're making that synaptic connection. And so you're literally changing your brain in that moment to be less afraid of that thing. And so whether it's public speaking, um, you know, just, uh, coming out of your shell at uh, a social gathering, um, it's, uh, it's exposure therapy really, that is, uh, the key. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, the key to, I think, linking that positive experience around the fear is bringing a sense of uh, calm to it. And having a daily mindfulness practice, I think, allows you to then, you know, bring that awareness into the experience. Um, but yeah, running, I think, so, you know, the, fo- the step process is sort of realizing that fear is, is made by you. And then... Um, seeing the fears that are holding you back from what you want to do and then tackling them head on, but in pot with positive baby steps toward the fear and with mindfulness. Right. Right. Well, I want to talk to you about your new book, all our waves are water. Tell us about the, the main thrust of this book. What is the main theme? Well, it's another series of stories like saltwater Buddha from travels, um, around the world. I go to India, Indonesia, Mexico. Some of them are surf stories. Some of them are uh, work stories. Some of them are uh, relationship stories. But um, throughout, I, um, I wanted to take this idea of integrating mindfulness practice into everyday life. So um, I'd lived in a monastery and found um, a sense of peace sort of separated from the ups and downs of everyday life. Um, but then when I went back into the world, it was hard to translate a lot of those experiences into, um, you know, the craziness of work life, the ups and downs of heartbreak and relationship. Um, and so this is really my decade. This book is really my decade of trying to do that. The reason it's called all our waves are water is there's this notion in a lot of meditation traditions, um, in uh, Buddhist and yoga meditation that um, you're moving toward uh, seeing how the connection between things, how everything is interdependent. Um, So uh, in Buddhism, that's called non-duality, but it's basically seeing that everything is sort of like a wave on the ocean. It looks separate, but it has a fundamental connection. And so all our waves are water is a way of talking about non-duality, but uh, I didn't want to do it in some esoteric 
just talking about, you know, mysticism. I wanted to tell it in an everyday way. Like, how does how does that play out when you're in the midst of uh, when you know, you're in you went to India with your college girlfriend and you guys broke up and you were, uh, um, you know, heartbroken. And how does that inside of non-duality come in? you know, and, and what's the point of it? And so that's sort of the theme of the book is looking at some of these uh, seemingly high-minded uh, mystical ideas and bringing them down to earth. And I do that through, uh, I'm sort of a story animal and I, that's the way that I understand life. And um, so I wanted to tell, tell those stories and that's, you know, that's, that's the thrust of it. Right, sure. So do you hope that this will be made into a movie as well, or do you have plans for that? You know, one can always dream. It was nice that Saltwater Buddha was made into a film, and it was a lot of fun, but I don't write ever looking for, you know, the movie version. Um, Yeah, so how did that happen? How did that come about, that Saltwater Buddha became a a film? Yeah, it was interesting. Um, uh, Well, the book came out uh, in 2009, and... I had done a little trailer. My friend had made a little uh, book trailer, basically of me talking about the book, like uh, like this, like we're doing now. And he had some surf shots. And um, a couple, Mike and Lara, um, who made dive films for National Geographic, saw that little video. And their friend had recently passed away of brain cancer. Mm-hmm. And um, she was a soul surfer, a longboarder in Santa Cruz, and they were looking for a story that would sort of um, honor her. Mm-hmm. Um, and they wanted that to make a, a film about surfing, and they saw the trailer and they said, "Hey, this is it." And they contacted me and said, "You know, you want to you want to make a movie?" <laughs> yeah. And uh, little did I know what I was getting into um, when I said yes. But you know, five years later. And, you know, lots of stops and starts in the funding process. We, you know, we have a film and we just finished the film festival tour. And it's actually, you can see it now. Um, it just went online. So you can, uh, you know, Google Saltwater Buddha Vimeo and, and rent or buy it now. So it was a long road, but we're, we made it. <laughs> well, that's really exciting. Yeah, it must feel good looking back now that it's a project completed. It does. I mean, it was a... I have so much respect for filmmakers. Um, it's there's so many little things that you don't see when you see a film, which is you know the funding process, um, the script, the editing, you know the failed, all the shooting that doesn't ever make the film, uh, right. the color correction, edit, sound, and uh, it was fun that this was a small grassroots project because we got to uh, be part of every one of those turns mm-hmm. and. So, you know, it just gave me a profound respect for the art of film. And uh, there were many times that we felt like, oh, well, we don't have the money to, you know, the book Saltwater Buddha goes to Hawaii and New York and all these places. And we thought, well, we don't have, you know, we'd get enough funding to go to Hawaii with the crew, but then we'd run out and, you know, we'd have to do another round. And there were many times that we thought, well, be, we should just stop. But, um, you know, we, pers- we persevered and it paid off. Oh, that's great. That's really great. Jamal, I've done work in bullying prevention for some time. And I, I just want to ask you if you have a story about bullying. Were you ever bullied? Were you ever in a situation where you bullied someone else? And, you know, where mindfulness maybe would have made a difference? Yeah, it's uh, 
That's a good question. I, I, you know, the surfing world, a lot of people think of surfers as like these really peaceful, um, Zen dudes, but it gets pretty tense out in the water sometimes. Um, and I actually write a story in saltwater Buddha about a time when I was out at a place in Santa Cruz, um, that gets really crowded. And, um, I just, I was sort of in, in my intermediate level of surfing. I mean, I'm still really in that level, but I, uh, I got a great wave. You know, I got a barrel, one of these waves where, where I got inside and, and that was, it was actually one of my first waves like that. And so I was feeling really confident and got a little overconfident, I think. And I, I dropped in in front of a guy on my next wave. And that's sort of the biggest faux pas in surfing is if you go, you drop in on someone, it's both dangerous, but it's also just an etiquette issue. Yeah. A lot of beginners don't realize this. And then, you know, and if you break rank essentially at one of these, uh, uber competitive surf breaks, you know, as happens in like, you know, all these films like North shore and point break, you know, you can really, uh, invoke wrath. And so I did that. And, and, you know, the, the guy was a local young local guy who just started, you know, spewing every bit of invective and every, you know, four letter word. And then some at me for a period of maybe, I mean, like 45 minutes, like this guy wouldn't let it go. And I kept thinking to get out of the water. Now I apologized. I, um, I ignored him. And eventually I was, you know, pretty seething inside and thinking, you know, what can I come back with? What can I, uh, you know, are we, and, um, but I actually, uh, it was mindfulness that really brought me out of it where I realized, you know, there was a point where he was, um, he was shouting all these, you know, homophobic obscenities at me and stuff. And, um, I remember seeing his neck bulging and his face really red. And I thought of, uh, the fact that he was really suffering in this situation. Like he was the one um, who's, who had no control over his anger and I was suffering too. I wasn't happy, but it was sort of a mutual situation. It was like, he was suffering. I was suffering. This wasn't a good thing. And that little thought, I think of compassion, um, switched me out of it where I wasn't quite as offended. I almost felt a, like just a little bit of, uh, compassion for this guy who clearly had no anger management <laughs> skills and um, and so I, I, I breathed. And I remembered a, um, a Zen story where a samurai is seeking um, uh, advice from a Zen master. And he goes to the Zen master and he says, uh, you know, sensei, teach me the difference between heaven and hell. And the Zen master says, you know, why would I teach a Cretan like you? You know, you're just a, you know, you're a, uh, an uneducated samurai. This is a high teaching. You know, I wouldn't wouldn't uh wouldn't stoop to that level and um this was a very respected samurai you never spoke you know samurai were very uh, revered um at this time in japan and um so the samurai gets enraged and he picks up his sword and he's about to slice the the monk and just as his eyes are bulging you know he's about to drop his sword the the zen master says wait he says that right there is hell and uh, and the samurai sort of thinks about it, and he realizes that he's been given this great teaching, and he realizes that you know he had he had let his emotions get the best of him, and that he was suffering in that moment. 
And then he bows to the Zen master and the Zen master says, and that is heaven. And I actually thought of that story. I'd heard it recently. I'd heard it told by uh, a teacher and um, in the midst of, of uh, this sort of angry moment, I thought of it and, and I thought of, you know, how much this guy was suffering and how much we both, and I thought of, you know, how much this guy was almost like its own, its own uh, animal that we were both clinging on to. And yeah, I won't say that I, I was in, it got me into any perfect Zen state, but it allowed me to sort of move through the situation without reacting and starting, you know, what would likely have been me getting beaten up <laughs> or, or, you know, he was with a bunch of his buddies and moved through it without it uh, being worse than it, it could have been. Sure. So, you know, that's one example of, of, of many, I think. I mean, fortunately, I haven't uh, been the victim of serious bullying um, growing up. But I think that the other thing that, uh, but I certainly have had my feelings hurt a number of times. And uh, I think what mindfulness has taught me over the years is that the more you're looking for validation, externally, um, the more that you set yourself up for angst and suffering and the more you sort of find the ability to accept yourself and love yourself for who you are, the more you set yourself up for real unshakable contentment. And that sounds almost hokey, but when you experience the, uh, state of self-acceptance that mindfulness can invoke, it no longer is hokey. It's real. It's like a, a, a tangible thing that you say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I don't need the approval of others. I don't need this external validation to feel good about myself or to feel or to accept myself. And um, and so I think, you know, apart from bullying, just any situation where you're feeling wronged or like, you know, you're not enough because of something somebody else said that idea of, oh, well, just love yourself. It sounds great, but it's hard to do. But in, in, in mindfulness practice, there's something about the state of being that can arise from being present that allows for a different kind of self-acceptance and allows you not to trust your own stories, negative stories that oftentimes bullying triggers. You know, a bully can trigger a lot of negative stories about yourself that whatever maybe you adopted from from childhood or from other traumatic experiences. And in mindfulness, you have an opportunity to sort of separate yourself from those stories and say, you know, I don't need to trust these. I don't need to buy into it because they really are just, you know, passing thoughts that are not real either. You know, they're not actually the, the, the reality of the situation. Right, right. Very interesting insight that you've shared. Thank you very much. As we head into the the final stretch of the interview, I would just want to ask you five quick answer questions. Like, here's the first one. Who is one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice, Jamal? Uh, you know, I'd have to say my mom. She, uh, <clears throat> a person who um, always did her daily practice. You know, she did... Uh, yoga and meditation since ever since I can remember. And I think seeing her uh, have some really difficult teaching jobs over the years um, and seeing how that evened her out um, and helped her through some difficult periods 
was an inspiration to me. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, if it has? I think it's allowed, it's enhanced the good ones and it's uh, helped me, you know, let the bad ones go. Sure. How has breathing become a part of your mindfulness practice? I mean, it is my mindfulness practice, uh, I think, because the breath is always there. It's something to focus on. And it's just so pleasant, you know, just taking a breath and being there with it. It's amazingly rich. Yes. Can you share a book with us which you would recommend is connected to mindfulness? I think uh, the classic Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, I always recommend to people. Um, I've read that countless times and it, I always sort of get a new insight from it every time, uh, or many new insights uh, by Suzuki Roshi. It's really, it's a very small book. It's nice to take with you on a trip and just read a page of it after a sit or before a sit um, or before practicing any kind of mindfulness uh, technique that you like. Can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? You know, I haven't been a big app user um, with mindfulness, um, but I... I do write occasionally for the Headspace uh, blog, and a lot of people I know have, a, have great success with that. And so um, I, I recommend it to people who, are, who like to, to find guided meditations online. Sure. Well, Jamal, it has been really exciting to talk with you and to learn about your projects. And your most recent project is, is ex exciting. That's coming out soon. Tell us how we can connect with you and how we can follow you and learn more about what you do. Thanks. Yeah, um, I'm on all the social media uh, sites, you know, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, so you can find me there. Uh, I also have a website, jamalyogas.com, uh, that has a list of events that I'm doing in July for All Our Waves or Water. I have a national tour, uh, and I'll be in a lot of states, not every state, but um, I'm hitting quite a few. So uh, connect with me there, and um, I try to respond to messages quickly, so feel free to write. That's great. Well, thanks again for being on the show, Jamal, and all the best with your with your book launch. Thank you so much, Bruce. I appreciate it. Okay, take care. Bye now. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.